question. I have about a million questions, and, and we've, we've, we've now gone through the, the, the pros. I want to go through some of the cons um, and, and some of the, the, the big issues with this company. Let's just call a spade a spade. Right now, this is a money-losing company. It does not make money today, correct? It's still losing money? On a per-unit basis, on an operating margin basis, uh, it is almost at break-even in profitability. By 2023, we will have overall profitability. Okay, so we still have to wait four years, though, uh, or three years, rather, to, to, for, for, for profitability. Um, big issue in terms of being able to compete with the big guys. I'm talking about Humana, United Health. Um, the, the, the metric that investors look at in terms of success is MLR, medical loss ratio. What is the medical loss ratio for Clover versus the it's big a great, guys? Great question. Great question. Out of the box, they're already meaningfully better. And what's great is their gross margins start better because they're a technology business and we think it's going to get better and better over time. And the reason why is because they create transparency. They don't play games. They don't motivate doctors to upcode or do all kinds of things in order to get paid. They've created an extremely transparent and efficient business. So their gross margins out of the box are better and we think they're going to continue to only get better relative to the companies like United and Humana. Given that you want to democratize the IPO process and allow more retail investors and others to get in, let's just walk through it. I want you to walk through it in a very granular way how much money you as the sponsor and, uh, are getting, what percentage of the company you're getting as a result of this. So uh, in the case of IPOC, I think we invested $16 million to get it off the ground. Um, now that the deal has come together, we've invested another 160-odd million dollars uh, in a pipe. The total investment by myself and my partners is about $171 uh, million. Um, the post-money valuation of this business um, is sort of five-odd billion dollars, and so we'll own um, about five or six percent of the business. You'll own five or six percent of the business. That's it. Yeah. Um, now, from my perspective, I think that that's a wonderful. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I just think uh, I think uh, no, what I'm trying to, to get across no, is like there's no warrants. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 50 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jason, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And, uh, oh man, we've, we've got a really good deep dive couple of episodes coming this week. You know, there's been a lot of talks about, about SPACs. What are they? What are SPACs? Why, why do they exist? Who do they exist for? All this nonsense. SPACs this, SPACs that. Uh, and so, you know, there's been some really good explainers about SPACs. Our, our man, Ed, wrote a fantastic one for Motherboard. SPACs are on everybody's brain right now. Not only do we want to kind of dive into, like, what is a SPAC, uh, but, but there's a really interesting case of SPACs in action uh, that, that we are going to spend a couple episodes, like, diving deep into. There's this, like 
hot new insure tech company called Clover Health uh, that in the in the financial news, at least, uh, made a little bit of a splash in part because Clover Health is being taken public by a SPAC by the man himself, Chamath Palahapatiya, who, you know, we'll, we'll get a little bit deeper into just who is Chamath Palahapatiya. Uh, but in part, Clover Health came to our attention because of this like long, detailed, extremely interesting and pretty damning report by this firm called Hindenburg Research. And we'll get a little bit more into what is this investment research firm slash activist short seller Hindenburg and, and really dive into Clover Health as a, as a prime example of what kind of innovation and disruption is brought to the market by SPACs. But before we get into all of that, we got to know what, what, is, what is a SPAC. So I'm, I'm going to throw it over to Ed, who, like I said, wrote recently in Motherboard. This just laid it out really clearly. So Ed, t- tell us what is a SPAC or a, a, a special purpose acquisition company? A SPAC or a special purpose acquisition company is, you know, a good way to imagine it is just like a really nice, you know, newest frontier of fraudulent, uh, borderline illegal, <laughs> you know, <laughs> reckless financial activity. Essentially, they are a shell company uh, that has no business model, uh, no business strategy, other than to take investor money and capital that's raised in an IPO, find a company to merge with in two years. And um, take that company uh, public, uh, and then either through other shenanigans or through holding equity or through offering sh- uh, shares and redeeming them, giving investors a payday, right? The reality is when you look at SPACs, right? SPACs have generous terms, right? You know, you need to have generous terms to attract investors into putting money into a company with no fucking business model, right? (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. um, the core structure ends up being what? You have a sponsor. This is a business executive, a company, private investor, an investment fund, someone with a large amount of capital who can force them over and then ask investors to match them with a blank check, right? And they'll say, okay, we have two years to, with the funds that we raise in an IPO, uh, acquire the target that I was talking about, right? To merge, acquire it, take it public cheaply. The sponsors, as a result of sponsoring, right, this IPO, this merger and acquisition, uh, get shares at a, you know practically free. They get you know about twenty to twenty five percent of the company at about twenty five thousand dollars, right? And during this process, they are also selling shares or offering shares to investors at ten dollars piece, right? And then if you redeem the shares. You get ten dollars plus interest, but when you buy something as an investor for ten dollars a piece, you're not just buying shares; you're also buying things called warrants and rights, right? So warrants and rights are, you know, some of the generous incentives that we were talking about. You know, so rights give you like about one tenth of a SPAC share for every unit that you buy, right? So if you, so one unit might have a a, a share, a right, and a warrant. If you buy one unit. You get a right, which gives you about you know one tenth of a share for every unit that you buy. If you get a warrant, it gives you about a half to one share um, that you can you know for each unit, right? So even after you redeem the shares, right, you can still have thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of rights and warrants, which give you access to free shares, right? 
you know, so this allows an investor who does nothing, right, to j- who just simply, you know, invests in the IPO, returns the money uh, or returns the shares by redeeming them, uh, but holds on to the sh- uh, warrants and rights. It gives them about like a safe investment, right? Because you can have a return of like 10% with no risk by just getting rid of the shares that you paid for. Uh, now, that's, you know, pretty attractive terms. That's why there are a lot of investors who are willing to do it. But there's also the idea that if the, you know, uh, share price pops ab- above $10, right? You're not going to need to redeem it and you can actually make a huge amount of money. And then you can also cash in or sell or redeem those rights or warrants for more shares, which you can then flip for even more money. But the problem, there, there are a bunch of problems emerge, you know, because of how many shares are given out for free, because of how often shares are redeemed, because of how low the fees are or how fixed certain fees are, Right and how low other fees are, irrespective of how well the IPO actually does, SPACs end up being a structure that has a lot of dilution. Right, a lot of new shares are issued, and a lot of the old shares are redeemed. So a lot of the remaining shares don't actually have money backing them. Right, and then you have fixed costs like underwriting, for example, uh, that eat into the cash that's actually delivered. One of the big rationales behind. Uh, SPACs as opposed to IPOs is that IPOs are expensive, right? You have there's this uh, there's this argument that underwriters underprice an IPO because they're guaranteeing it, so that there will be an increase in demand at this lower than optimal level for the share, and that this demand will translate to increased activity from their clients who will generate them higher than normal returns because they're buying it at a higher than normal rate because of the lower than average price. So the argument, you know, some will say, look, a pop is actually money left on the table because if we sold, if we were priced properly, if instead of having the the share at IPO day priced at $20 and then jumping up to $30 and selling all those shares, we should have priced it at $30. And that, that uh, $20 to $30 jump is a pop, it's money left on the table, it's a cost, right? But similarly, you know, if you look at a SPAC process, right? Underwriting is a fixed cost despite how many shares are redeemed. But there's also the fact that SPACs have their own sort of pop or their own sort of uh, you know pricing problems, right? Where a lot of the shares uh, for SPACs that are supposed to be issued at ten dollars are not actually don't actually perform or hit ten dollars, right? Because in reality, right, if you have a massive amount of shares that are given for free, a massive amount of shares that are redeemed, a massive amount of shares that are given for nominal price, right? You don't actually have capital. You don't have capital behind each and every one of those shares, right? You also have investors who are going to come in and eat into the cash delivered just so they can get their shares back for free at a lower price, right? So, you know, this is, you know, the the, the dilution ends up being a huge concern or something that someone should step back and look at, right? But there's also the fact that the vast majority of SPACs, you know, $10 is the price at which the IPO happens for the company. But after the merger, most of them drop below that, right? You know, the Financial Times did an analysis in August 2020, found that the vast majority of SPACs from 2015 to 2019 sat below $10 per share, which means that you were better off redeeming than holding the bag after the merger and that you lost value, right? And, you know, as a result, mm-hmm. every, you know, almost every single SPAC, you know, if it's ending up below ten dollars, which is the IPO price, then what you're really what that really means is that's another way of saying the shareholders subsidized the IPO for this company that couldn't get an IPO otherwise, right? And so we should think of them as just vehicles for stealing money 
from idiotic investors or greater fools who don't realize that the company they're pouring money into would not have gone public if not for this fraudulent, you know, exit ramp. There's so many moving parts here, right? Like, like right. SPACs are so unnecessarily complex. Um, I mean, as I think your explainer is, is really clearly laying out, there there's just so much going on, right? Like, like SPACs are also called blank check companies, right? Because the idea, just to make sure that I've got it straight here, the idea here is that like, you know, some investors, and it's not only like the usual suspects of like venture capitalists and Wall Street guys, and it's really popular in Silicon Valley right now, um, but also what, like, like everyone and ev- everybody has a fucking SPAC now, right? Like all these celebrities have SPACs, politicians have SPACs, like basically anybody with some spare capital and, uh, and a name to themselves uh, is creating a SPAC taking it public and and what like these they're called blank check companies because like you're expected to just invest a bunch of money into this spec uh, based on part in like the person that's bringing it public whether it's like you know what like uh, jay-z and Shaq and serena williams and steph curry and colin kaepernick all have spacs but then also of course um people like you know as your article lays out like you know former house speaker paul ryan big uh, celebrity VCs like Chamath Palihapitiya, uh, like all these people have SPACs as well. Because what, like the idea is that like, I, I, I have so much trust in this person's reputation or their public profile or their investing investment acumen um, that I'm just going to give them a bunch of money and let them write a blank check to, to find a, a, a private company and then merge with it and then like take it public by merging with this company. Is that, yeah, is that you know, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, um, like a very you know simple way, you know, thinking about all of these moving parts. Let's say you have a SPAC, right? The SPAC has 100 shares. I buy 10 for myself, right? Those 10 shares, they're 10% of the company, right? But this does not include the fact that now there are because I bought you know ten shares or ten units right when the company merges or when I execute those rights or warrants there's going to be new shares that come into play right there are other investors that have new shares that come into play and then there are other shares that are off the market right now because they were given to the sponsor to play so that so there's immediately there's one stage of dilution there's also the cost that you can trade those rights and warrants to people who never invested in the IPO, right? Another stage of dilution. You all, and, so, and all of this builds up and up until like, I think the median cost that, you know, there were some researchers uh, out of Stanford and NYU uh, law school that, you know, basically found in November, 2020, that if you looked at the cash that SPACs delivered, so you take the IPO proceeds, you subtract the de- redemptions, you know, the cost of redeeming your shares, but you add in the money that new investors put in. The amount of money that gets eaten up by the SPAC process is about 50%. Um, or, and if you measure that as like a, as a measure of post-merger equity, it's about 14.1% of the post-merger equity, right? So that means a company has to increase its value by about 14% to justify the cost of a SPAC. And if you look at just like the cost of the cash delivered, you know, IPOs, let's, you know, the average IPO pop, right, is about 20%, you know, sometimes 25%. If you, you so you're losing in theory 20 to 25% of the cash uh, delivered by an IPO because of the pop. Now, SPAC is losing 50%, you know, in what world is 50% of the cash delivered, 14% of the equity needing to be exceeded, you know, realized 
uh, cheap. You know, in what world is that a good right. investment? It's it's a it's a bad investment for everyone except for the sponsors and the early IPO investors who get rid of their shares. Right. I mean, it raises all these questions about like like what's the point of a what's the point of a spec? Because as you just laid out, like the argument is that like it avoids that IPO pop, right? Like like you you know you're a private company and you're looking to go public, but you don't want an IPO pop. You don't want to pay Goldman Sachs to underwrite like all their fees and stuff. So you know, spacs are supposedly a way around that. But as you just laid out like there's so many other like fees and uncertainties and speculation involved that's like why would you do a spec and let alone like why would you do one when uh, but like why is everyone doing a spec right like you know as your article also lays out there there's so clearly like a spec bubble right like this is a pretty new uh you know it's it's not like a super new financial instrument but it's very recently become the like major financial instrument de jure right now right like it, it's 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 the hot ticket where like what in 2020 uh across the US SPACs raised 83 billion dollars how much mm-hmm. did they raise in just January of 2021 26 billion dollars i mean SPACs are raising a stupid amount of money yeah right mm-hmm. like and that t- 2020 number is more than they've ever raised in any other year combined right it's right absurd. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely and it's and it's you know there are other things like we talked about how uh SPACs have to liquidate themselves if they don't have a target within two years 300 SPACs are going to have to do that this year um because of how many have been created in the last two years in addition to that right it's been documented and, you know, because this is not the first time SPACs have been in the public eye, as you said, this is the first time they've had like a massive public bubble. But we know that when SPACs come to the end of their period in which they can, you know, manage the money and have to liquidate, they're more likely to make a riskier decision and invest in a poor target that will perform poorly and lose everyone's money except for the sponsor and the early IPO investors. And what's going to happen when you have 300 SPACs, you know, ready to roll or eager to roll, right? They're not 300 strong, viable, you know, ready to go public companies uh, that would be willing to do a SPAC. There are 300 companies you could do that, right? You can do a SPAC for anything. I was talking to researchers who said, you know, like the concern isn't that SPACs will take bad companies public. It was, this concern is that they'll take companies that have no business being public public because they'll just take the money from the SPAC. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Why wouldn't they? <laughs> you know, you're paying for them to go public so they can get access to public markets. Sure. You know, just pay for it. Subsidize it if you want. Exactly. And and like part of the business model of the SPAC here as well is that like the investor the person or or company or conglomerate or whatever that's forming this spac uh is then using their public profile in whatever way whether it's their celebrity or their uh, investment act like like track record or whatever to then go about as the sponsor as the spac's sponsor to promote this company right that they're trying to take public because they also want to get that like they want to get that huge pop in the uh the SPAC's share price after they uh merge and acquire with a company yeah i mean as you laid out like it does it does cause this really uh you know if that two-year mark is coming up and you haven't found a target company to acquire it causes this panic where you just start looking around like oh i I need to find something i need to find something to take public and maybe on the best case scenario you can public do a spec for the ice cream truck that's in my neighborhood you know maybe they need exactly 
Exactly. And then, you know, maybe in the best case scenario, you take public like a really dumb company or a bad company or, you know, a company that's just going to like lose a bunch of money. They weren't ready to go public for a reason or worst case scenario, as we'll lay out in these episodes, you end up promoting and and taking public uh, a company that maybe shouldn't have been going public because there's some really underlying, you know, possibilities, alleged malfeasance, deception, <laughs> alleged fraud, fraud. Uh, all kinds of things like that, right? Like, I, I think the, you know, the company that we're going to really focus on in these two episodes are our free episode and then like diving even deeper into it in our premium episode this week. Uh, you know, as I mentioned at the top, Clover Health, right? It's this private company. It's an insure tech company. Uh, it's you know making money off of off of some software. It's supposed it, 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 you know some really great software it supposedly has, um, but also at, at, you know making money off of like Medicare, right? Like like being a Medicare Advantage uh, insurer. But I, I think Clover Health is a really juicy story about how at their base, SPACs are this really cool new financial innovation. If you think things like public disclosure and business fundamentals are socialist plots to destroy capitalism, right? Because <laughs> right. <laughs> that's the benefit of a SPAC by you know this going public in a private way through a merger rather than an IPO is you don't have to do onerous things like filings, you know, like like SEC filings and IPO filings and stuff like that, where you have to lay out all kinds, where you have to disclose all kinds of information, where you have to lay out a prospectus for your businesses, like fundamentals and profitability and all that, you know, for, you know, for everyday investors to be able to look at, you know, a SPAC let, lets you and lets capitalism keep doing what it's good at doing. Uh, which is avoiding all of that scrutiny and attention. Right, right. You know, and um, and let you do things that allegedly you wouldn't be allowed to do, you know, if you were doing them. Which right. They're not. <laughs> which, which, which they're not because it, the markets wouldn't be functioning properly. I mean, the whole thing is that SPACs are such great investments because they never lose investors' money. Because they t- they cheaply take companies you know public because they're efficient allocation of resources because they're smart choices and, and insightful picks and they're led by smart operators like Chamath right who understand and have no reason to mislead investors. <laughs> Yeah, definitely is not trying to avoid the kind of attention and scrutiny that might reveal uh, deception and fraud uh, deeply embedded in a business's operations. Allegedly. 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 Right. So <laughs> before we like really start diving into this juicy story and all the corporate drama here between Clover Health, Chamath Palahabatia SPAC that's sponsoring uh, you know, Clover Health by taking it, by merging with it, taking it public through the SPAC. Before we dive into all that, before we dive, you know, I, I want to be really clear that there is a blanket allegedly <laughs> on these episodes about Clover Health, right? Because we're, we're going to be talking our way through a really long and detailed report that was released recently by Hindenburg Research. And Hindenburg Research is an investment research and short-selling firm. So in this really long report that Hindenburg released, they allege, based on 
the firm's extremely detailed investigation uh, and and interviews with former employees of Clover, uh, interviews with doctors and physicians offices that are using Clover Health's um, software and accepting Clover Health's insurance. They, you know, in this report, Hindenburg is alleging rampant malfeasance, deception, conflicts of interest in Clover Health. And as as we'll discuss through this report, there's there's enough red flags here on Clover that the Department of Justice has an active investigation into the company's practices. They've enumerated something like 11 specific issues that are worth uh, investigation by the DOJ. Um, and, and this is an investigation that until now was not disclosed to the investing public, the kind of people who might be because of Chamath Palahapatiya's public profile and because of all the promotion that he's been doing about Clover Health, um, you know, might think this is a really sound investment and I'm going to put my money into it, not knowing that there are like that there's an active Department of Justice investigation and that there are a number of serious concerns and critical issues being raised about Clover Health's business practices. It's like you're giving a presentation with like one of SoftBank's crazy ducks, and they're like, "What's that? Uh, what's that text at the at the bottom? You know, that tiny, tiny text. I can't really see it. Is that is that a disclosure? No, 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 no. You don't got to worry about that. It's... Okay. You <laughs> why why is it? The why Fed is it? Think there's something suspicious going on. <laughs> why is it six point font and also colored white? The same color yeah. as the background. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, it is. It is really rich that they not disclosing this, and as we'll talk, we'll dive into later. You know, from their perspective, there are uh, reasons why you shouldn't tell your investors uh, that you're being investigated by the federal government. You know, notwithstanding those reasons being that you don't want to lose the investors <laughs> because that might be really bad for investor trust. Uh, right. and, and and you know, no, no, we're 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 trying to we all we want to do is create a good relationship of trust with the public. And sometimes you just gotta you know tell some noble lies and you gotta uh, not disclose some things because it might harm that trust with the investing public. Before we get into that, I think it's worth giving, uh, spending a little bit of time talking about the background on Hindenburg Research, which, as I said at the top right, is an investment research firm with a focus on activist short selling. So their bread and butter here is investigating companies uh, for fraud and malfeasance, right? Like trying to do this like serious investigation into the the operations and fundamentals of a company to see like is there something wrong here? Like is the is this the stock price of this company overinflated because there aren't public disclosures about malfeasance and fraud? And so you know there's there are a number of firms that do this, and uh, Hindenburg got really famous uh, a few years ago as the firm that revealed. Uh, Nikola, with you know the the company that's like basically Tesla for trucks, was quote an intricate fraud built on dozens of lies end quote uh, about essentially every single aspect of the company's 
business and technology. So for listeners, Nicola, if you remember, was the company that posted this like widely shared promotional video um, of its, you know, innovative zero emissions truck uh, in motion, supposedly, you know, to show that it worked, right? It had a working prototype of this truck that could actually drive. But in reality, as Hindenburg revealed in their report, uh, Nikola had just pushed the truck down a hill. Right. <laughs> right. Like, like who needs an electric vehicle when gravity power works just as well? Yeah, they actually they, they made something even more revolutionary than a, than an electric vehicle. They made like a gravity drive, you know, or a perpetual motion engine. So you don't, <laughs> you right. don't actually need, you know, power and <laughs> just push it and then it, and then you can get inside of it. We're taking these perpetual motion machines nationwide. <laughs> yeah. Monroeville. Thomasville, coming to your local hometown soon. Keep an eye out. <laughs> I want a, I want a chicken in every pot and a perpetual motion machine in every driveway. <laughs> yeah, this is Fallout DLC. Was, you know, Bethesda was, hit us up. We got ideas for this. That was Nicola's promise. And then as mm-hmm. Hindenburg showed, so after Hindenburg, through their report, alleged that uh, Nicola's founder, Trevor Milton, was responsible for lying his ass off to investors <laughs> and the public. Right. Uh, Milton resigned as executive chairman of Nicola. The company stated it had, quote, incurred significant expenses as a result of the regulatory and legal matters relating to the Hindenburg report, end quote. You know, yeah, no, it was only because of the Hindenburg report <laughs> that they had all of these uh, right. significant expenses, not because of the uh, the lies and fraud perpetuated by the company itself. You know, yeah, the world's smallest violin is playing right now for them. That's right. Let's come together and please shed a tear and a moment of silence for all the grifters and bullshitters because innovation is really hard. It's hard. <laughs> so in, in this report on Clover Health, you know, interestingly, I found that Hindenburg disclosed, quote, We have no position, short or long, in Clover Health because we think in this moment for public markets, it is more important for people to understand the role short sellers play in exposing fraud and corporate malfeasance. Wall Street is a finely tuned machine built to sell securities to the public regardless of quality. In short, the corporate world is rife with fraud and investors have little protection, end quote. So I I find this really interesting as well because like, Defending the role of short sellers in the market is a big bugbear for firms like Hindenburg Research. These like investment research firms, activist short sellers, right? And it, you know, in Hindenburg's case, it really seems like they're you know they're trying to do this investigation into Clover Health to demonstrate that their investment research, which they describe as critical and adversarial. Uh, is a public service meant to contribute to healthy functioning markets. Now, I think we can disagree about that overall point, right? That like that, you know, these activist short sellers and investment research firms have a role to play here in this, right? Like, yes, you know, as Hindenburg, you know, goes through pains to lay out, um, these activist short seller firms were instrumental um, over, you know, over recent history and you know this model has existed for hundreds of years as they as they explain um and has was you know exposed 
major market frauds like Enron, you know, Lehman Brothers, uh, you know, systemic mortgage fraud. I mean, we can see that, we, you know, just just watch the movie Big Short, right, to see how, you know, that was activist short selling, as well as like Wirecard and uh, Nicola, right? Like, it's, it's interesting. Like, obviously, I, I don't think any of us are on the side of um, right. these like, <laughs> activist short sellers and investment research firms. Right. It is interesting, though, because short sellers, because of GameStop and because of Wall Street bets are like under a lot of pressure and a lot of heat right now, right? Like they've got mm. they've got the populist gun to their head, um, has, has, and so they really mm. want to go through uh, and try to prove no, we're doing something that's actually really crucial and beneficial, and that's what this Hindenburg or this Hindenburg's report of Clover Health is, which is why they disclose that they have no position, so they have nothing to gain. Um, from Clover Health and and uh, Chamath Palahapatia's SPAC going up or down in the market, they're they're trying to do a public service here. And you know, reading through this report, it I, I mean I wouldn't I, w- I would lie if I didn't say, damn, this you know, the the, the this uh, intense investigation, I mean, really an evisceration of Clover mm-hmm. Health it is. It, Definitely a brutal and delightful case of Wall Street justice. <laughs> and the thought right. crossed my mind, you know, I was like, hmm, maybe maybe my talents are actually better served uh, <laughs> working for one of these uh, investment research firms and as, yeah. a, as a short seller. Listen, the TMK family is about to grow. First, we're going to get a SPAC. I mean, we've got an LLC. We're going to get a SPAC. Then we're going to get a short selling uh, research firm. Uh, then we're going we're to get a hedge fund. Then we're going to get an index fund. Um, then we're going to get bonds. I don't know how we're going to do that, but we'll do it. We'll figure out a way to do it. Then we're going to do a <laughs> cryptocurrency so that we can continue to bring you uh, innovative uh, but incisive critiques of Wall Street on their own turf, right? Justice in their own <laughs> their own language. All of this, you know, all the Clover. The, where would Clover be without the man himself, right? Mm. The king of Spacks. I was trying to think of alliteration there. Uh, the king. <laughs> all right, so we got we got the king of Spacks, the count of capital, the viscounts of ventures, mm-hmm. uh, the vice lord of ventures. Right, right. There we go. Uh, the future governor of California, um, as he wants to, <laughs> as he's trying to insist on Twitter, um, Chamath Palahapatia. You know, he's a billionaire, very incredibly rich man, former executive at Facebook, uh, formed uh, this venture capital fund uh, called Social Capital, which states that their, quote, mission is to advance humanity by solving the world's hardest problems. We believe that empowering entrepreneurs who seek to improve the lives of people around them is the best way to create more opportunity globally. You know, it's, you know it's very, <laughs> All right. very, yeah, right. You know, you know, like, you, right. know you, can hear, you can hear the lotion uh, going on when they say <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, he's made himself, he's made a name for himself as a billionaire who cares about inequality and climate change. He wants to stick up for the little guy. He's called Wall Street, a corrupt cesspool. You know, he's a bit of a shit poster. You know, he was uh, he's a big on GME and on Wall Street's bet and tried to was one of the people pushing this, you know, weird framing of it being a populist uprising against, you know, hedge funds. Uh, and he used that pretty much effectively, you know, because he knew which uh, way the wind was blowing as a way to capitalize on publicity and, you know, align himself with everyday investors. He's also been in the news because he's been pretty vicious 
against uh, firms that he thinks should like, you know, go under. I remember early on in the pandemic, he was on CNBC and he's on there a lot, you know, with these sort of hot takes uh, saying that the bailout, Trump's bailout of various firms like the airline industry should not happen and that these firms should go under because they're zombie companies. Time now for the executive edge. Some comments um, by venture capitalist Chamath Palihapitiya picking up some steam over the weekend, causing a bit of a debate as airlines look uh, to the federal government for bigger bailouts amid the pandemic. Here's what he said last week on the Halftime Report. Are you arguing to let airlines, for example, fail? Yes. Why? I mean, how does that make sense in the broader scheme of, of the economy? Because it's not because when you look at what it means, this is why I'm saying like this is a lie that's been purported by Wall Street. When a company fails, it does not fire their employees. It goes through a packaged bankruptcy. Right. If anything, what happens is the people who have the pensions inside those companies, the employees of these companies end up owning more of the company. The people that get wiped out are the speculators that own the unsecured tranches of debt or the folks that own the equity. And by the way, those are the rules of the game. That's right, because these are the people that purport to be the most sophisticated investors in the world. They deserve to get wiped out. So the, you know, that's nice. That's that's good. But we're talking about SPACs, and in SPACs, he's a totally different animal, right? You know, in the world of SPACs, the, this man has made now 13 SPACs, right? Mm-hmm. There's still I mean, a lot of them are still looking for target companies, right? Uh, but he's used a lot of his SPACs to take companies public, like Virgin Galactic, which he holds a 49.5% stake in, Open Door Technologies, you know, that's a platform for selling and flipping real estate, and, you know, the beautiful crown jewel, the subject of our episode, Clover Health. Oh, also a side note. I think, um, let me see. There's uh, something I wanted to add. He had, um, he had a horrible week. Uh, no, it probably, probably won't be too relevant, but he had a horrible week with his SPACs um, and he was posting results and trying to explain them, but I didn't read in too much of it. So probably. Yeah. I saw, I saw some stuff on like Motley Fool and other places that like, uh, Virgin Galactic and Clover Health uh, have had some really bad weeks. Um, yeah, you know. they lost two billion. But you know that that that's the spat game, baby. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. speculation. <laughs> yeah, it probably doesn't matter. It's probably not relevant that he lost two billion dollars in one week in the spacs. You know? Yeah, uh, you know. <laughs> no, because his because uh, because he's got like you know. Uh, he just spun up seven new spacs, and so you know those those are gonna find those are gonna find the real gold mines out there. You know, you, you just got you got trust in the spac, trust in Chamath, trust in the process. <laughs> right, and, exactly. And, and like definitely, the 69ers. <laughs> and definitely do not trust this this slander from companies like Hindenburg. Research, you know, trying trying to undermine uh, innovative and disruptive companies. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> with that foundation, uh, you know, I mean, I think that in itself is really crucial, uh, and and a and a contribution of this episode is just understanding like what is SPACs and and like how is all this playing out. Now, you know, we're gonna give you a little bit of a rundown of. Uh, this Hindenburg report, and then, like I said, like we're gonna dive so much deeper into this in the in the premium episode because 
oh man, like like the more I got into this really long report by Hindenburg laying out just like, you know, big red flag after another, after another, um, about everything from uh, the company's deceptive sales prices uh, to, you know, like like undisclosed, uh, you know, upcoding, you know, basically defrauding Medicare, marketing in a in really deceptive ways to senior citizens, you know, setting up these like quid pro quos with physicians offices and doctors and nurses, um, all the way up to Clover Health's CEO uh, having a really, really nefarious past, uh, mm-hmm. very, you know, a very recent <laughs> nefarious past. Um, it's like, it's like the whole, this whole fucking house of cards, which just came tumbling down as this Hindenburg report systematically took one card off one card off, one card off, and suddenly there, there's nothing there to hold it up, right? Like thing there to justify why this company should be valued at like, uh, you know, I, if I remember right, I think uh, Palo Abatia was saying that like they're looking at valuing Clover Health at $5 billion, right? Um, that it's going to be profitable when by 2023 let's get yeah, we've heard that before <laughs> <laughs> profitability is always three years away ed the problem is is right. that it's always three years from today and then three years from right. tomorrow and then three years from the people, week after <laughs> a lot of people don't understand this that uh that's how profitability works it's not when i say three years from now like you said it's not it doesn't mean three years from now it means three years from the next time you ask me i mean that's what it <laughs> it's very simple i think more people need if more people went to business school then they would understand this right? <laughs> so hindenburg's uh investigation into clover health spanned um, as they put it right, like four months, they spent four solid months conducting dozens of interviews with former employees and industry experts and competitors, dozens of calls to doctor's offices, reviewing thousands of pages of government reports, insurance filings, regulatory filings, like they really put in the work here, like pouring through all all public information about Clover Health, connecting dots. You know, they they busted out their cork board and their red string and they were they were connecting all the dots and showing that there there's some real malfeasance, alleged malfeasance going on here, right? right. And, and 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 you know, I think the crown jewel of it all is and what really like kind of motivated and 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 strings together Hindenburg's report is that Clover Health has not disclosed that its business model and its software offering, which is called Clover Assistant, are under active investigation by the Department of Justice, which is investigating at least 12 issues ranging from kickbacks to marketing practices to undisclosed third-party deals, self-dealing, you know, according to this uh, civil investigative demand that Hindenburg uh, obtained. And and a civil investigative demand is um, very, very similar to a subpoena. Um, from the DOJ. It's beautiful. It's be- I mean, I think, you know, the past 10 years has been hard for bankers and investors. All, all these demands for uh, accountability and transparency, we're finally moving back to the point where you can be investigated seriously by the DOJ and you don't have to disclose it because you don't have to. It's not your, it's not their business, right? right. It's yours. It's it's yours. And and as as we'll get through as well, right, like Clover's uh, response to, to all this is, is that like, 
you know, businesses like ours are routinely under investigation. And, you know, and the Department of Justice is always asking questions about what we're doing. You know, that's just that's just the nature of the business. And 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 you're so stupid that you don't understand that this is business as usual to be investigated by the Department of Justice. <laughs> right. Right. You know, the per- the perp walk is just is, comes with the terrain being detained, being arrested, you know, getting fine these are just normal you know courses of action that go on it's nothing doesn't indicate that we're guilty allegedly of anything we didn't do anything that's right you know just to to kind of quickly run down before we like really dive deeper into it some of the the major hits here right is that like as hindenburg lays out clover claims that it's best-in-class technology is what's behind uh, its its sales growth. Whereas what Hindenburg found through its own investigation is that much of Clover's sales, um, like a materially significant amount of their sales are driven by the, these like major undisclosed um, related party deals and uh, misleading marketing that's specifically targeting the elderly, right? Like, you know, these practices as they lay out should also not be a surprise because only uh, you know a few years ago in 2016 clover was fined for misleading marketing practices by the department of health and human services uh, centers for medicare and medicaid services so you know they've already gotten fines for this kind of misleading marketing practice these fines which amounted to like just over $100,000 clover health saw this as basically so insignificant as just a cost of doing business that they were like Oh, if that if that's all that we're getting fined for doing these like this like deceptive and misleading marketing, <laughs> then then I, I'm feeling bold. I'm I'm feeling yeah, like look. this is actually the Department of Health and Human Services being <laughs> like, hey, don't do that. But a big wink if you keep doing it. Ah, right. All right. It's all right. If, <laughs> if they wanted us to stop, they would have actually fined us like millions of dollars. The fact that they thought we were doing something wrong, but only fined us a hundred thousand dollars. Come on. That's that's basically saying do it again. <laughs> the for-profit healthcare industry in the United States is a beast. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not surprised because most of the large uh, companies that have to uh, have to have oversight from uh, Medicare, Medicaid, from the United States government, the fines that they face are so paltry that it's just not even worth their time to correct or fix any of the problems. They just rather pay the fine and keep doing business as usual. I've worked in the medical industry for like 20 years and the number of times that I've been at a, you know, a senior citizen's home or a patient's home, you know, reason X, Y, and Z, and they see an ad for something they see on television that they swear that's going to be life-changing for them and only to have their expectations crushed by explaining to them that it's a fucking scam. They're all scams. If, you know, if you can't get something through like a doctor's office or through a pharmacy prescribed by a doctor... Don't listen to any of the shit you see on daytime television. It's like 90% of the ads that are on daytime television are just scam ads directed to senior citizens to get them to call and to pay for some product that's going to make all these promises. And they're going to make money from it. And they're not going to fulfill any of those promises. And instead, all they're going to do is pay stupid fines. 
Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things I was like so enraged. Like the, the rage in me was building as I was reading this report because so much of, you know, what they're doing, you know, what Hindenburg alleges that Clover Health is doing is essentially deceiving and defrauding senior citizens and, and Medicare, right? A government health insurance program, defrauding them. Why? So a couple, you know, insure tech uh, executives and venture capitalists can get a little bit richer, right? Like it, it was so enraging because, I mean, this is one of the, you know, senior citizens right now, one of the most, you know, they are so vulnerable to these kinds of scams, which is why they are routinely targeted for them. You know, there a lot of them are on fixed income, right? There's these stories coming out about how they're like in their 70s and still working because they're like, I, I can't afford to retire. I will have to work until I die. Um, and that makes them an even more vulnerable population to target for this kind of stuff. I mean, to Jeremy's exact point, one of the things that uh, Hindenburg also shows uh, in their report is that Clover had this thinly disclosed subsidiary called Seek Insurance. So, uh, you know, on their website, Seek makes no mention of its relationship with Clover on a website that advertises to seniors that it offers, quote, independent and unbiased advice on selecting Medicare plans, right? Seek Insurance claims, quote, we don't work for insurance companies, we work for you. Despite what? Literally being owned by Clover, uh, an insurance company, right? Mm -hmm. and, and Hindenburg only found this out by looking at Clover's um, SEC, SEC filings and seeing that Seek Insurance is a subsidiary of Clover. There's nowhere on Seek Insurance's website that mentions its relationship with Clover, an insurance company. I mean, this is another perfect opportunity for this kind of misleading marketing, which is designed to deceive uh, senior citizens into thinking they're getting, you know, objective advice on how to pick a Medicare plan, not advice by an insurance company on how to pick a Medicare plan. The red flags just go on and on and on. I mean, all the way up to like, you know, even things like Clover claiming as as all these companies do that its software is, you know, like the most user friendly, most revolutionary, uh, delightful thing to use. It's so convenient and it's so efficient and blah, blah, blah. But according to doctors and former employees interviewed by Hindenburg Research, why do these uh, physicians offices use Clover Assistant, the this, this software, it's because Clover Health pays them to use it. Physicians are paid $200 per visit to use the software, which is twice the normal reimbursement rate for a Medicare visit. They're able to rack up revenue um, simply by using this software. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but like, you know, we're, we're always told that if, if you're not the customer, you're the product, right? Like these free services, you know, from Google or Facebook or whatever. And, you know, you should be pretty skeptical about that. But also it raises some eyebrows when a company is literally having to pay you to use their software, right? right. Like, so it must be a great software if you having to uh to pay me every time I uh, I, I <laughs> no, use dude, it. No, dude, right? it's great, it's great, it's great. But I'm gonna have to pay you twice as much for you to ask twice as less questions. So That's please right. just take my money. <laughs> just take, just just shut up and take my money, and right. yeah, and and don't worry about it. Just put that on your on your balance sheet.
Chamath Palihapitiya's SPAC firm, which is, you know, sponsoring and taking public Clover Health, um, has received over 20 million founders shares, which are worth around $290 million at current uh, prices as of release of of Hindenburg's report in exchange for $25,000 and for promoting the Clover Health SPAC. Because Chamath was going, was doing the the media rounds. My man was on CNBC. He was giving interviews everywhere. He was on podcasts. He was talking up Clover Health because that's the role of a SPAC sponsor, right? Like part of what you're paying is for someone with a big public profile like Palihapitiya to go around and promote your company. Um, and and by doing so, promote his SPAC, right? Which is acquiring that company. You know, uh, Hindenburg raises some really crucial questions here. Of like, given that investors are paying over a quarter billion dollars for Chamath's due diligence, uh, you know, quote, we think they deserve to know whether Chamath Palapatia knew of these issues and concealed them or whether he simply failed to notice them at all. You know, just a, a little a, a note here um, is that obviously Clover Health in response to Hindenburg's report wrote up their own little, their, their own medium post kind of trying to do a little point by point rebuttal. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in that medium post, we find out that actually Palihapitiya knew about the DOJ investigation. He knew Mm -hmm. about all these potential issues and concerns and chose to keep that close to the vest and not reveal that to investors and the public. Which is um, a weird thing to admit, but hey, you know, (laughs) people want to people want to tell themselves, you know, it's cool. And, you know, I think that that the fact that they told them themselves is a way to hedge you know, the findings of the report, I think also speaks to, you know, the analysis that's going on there. I mean, they began looking at uh, Clover Health, you know, back in October 2020. You know, this is when Palahapatia was uh, doing the uh, media tour that you're talking about, you know, the promotion of why he was going to take this company public with the SPAC, you know, um, and in their own words, right, our, our four-month investigation led us to conclude that Cloverhouse culture was rooted in deception and has taken every opportunity to push or break the rules to mislead its customers, investors, and Medicare, Right. Key among their findings was this discovery, of course, that you know Clover Health was under the investigation by the DOJ and obtaining a copy of it, right? But also this copy of the civil investigative demand and and the corresponding investigation, you know, despite this disclosure on Medium, still have not been disclosed to investors, right? Even though if a Department of Justice investigation is you know, happening, that's an existential threat because what is the major revenue source for Clover Health, right? It's Medicare, you know, the government payer. But regardless of this, right, I think it is a huge, it's a massive, as they point out, a massive conflict of interest that someone whose firm invested $25,000 or, you know, someone who's, you know, gave up $25,000 for, you know, equivalent of, you know, 290 and uh, $290 million in today's stock price, right? Or at stock price at the time of the publication uh, is not really, you know, sharing or confiding details about why he made these decisions. Mm. You know, a little bit on Clover Health, right? Clover Health is uh, an insurance company that was founded in New Jersey, right? In 2020 and 2012, sorry. And, um, you know, began selling Medicare Advantage in the state in around 2013. You know, the company has about 57,000 members and 
98% of its revenue, 98% of its revenue, you know, coming from New Jersey as of 2019. Over half of its plans are sold to low-income or minority seniors, and the company is one of the fastest-growing Medicare Advantage insurers in the country, right? And its board members, you know, they include illustrious members of the highest rungs of society, right? Former first daughter Chelsea Clinton, investors like Sequoia and Alphabet's GV, you know, the venture capital fund, Google Ventures uh, Capital Fund, uh, who are, you know, at the top of the cabal for you know, venture capitalists. And it's, uh, you know, you know, it's October 6th around, right? Which is around the time in which it gets on their radar. But it's around October 6th that Palahapatia says, okay, I'm going to take the company public, right? He was in the media describing Clover's, quote, the holy grail of what healthcare should do, quote, and proclaiming, well, along with a team, you know, some of the most respected investors in the world, you know, that we that we validated this company. This company is legitimate. It's on all its fundamentals now. There's something magical happening here. You know, the proprietary software product, you know, Clover Assistant, as Jason talked about, was the key that, you know, Palahapatia and the Clover management kept pushing investors to look at, you know, to to zoom in on, to focus on, claiming that this was a disruptive software, that it created a quote virtuous cycle of happier, better informed doctors. And that's why they kept coming back, not because of the, the you know 200% higher payments per visit. So they had better informed doctors, they had healthier patients, they had huge winnings you know, that would translate into more profits for Clover and its investors, right? Has any of that materialized? Clover has not turned a profit. It's gotten consistent losses to date. As of September 30th, 2020, the company had an accumulated loss of $901.6 million, right? And as Jason said, they said, look, 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 don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Three years, two years, actually now, two years, we're going to be profitable. We're going to be profitable by, by 2023. I promise you. You know, yeah, December thirty first, twenty twenty three. We're gonna be profitable. <laughs> we're gonna be we're gonna be at the stock exchange ringing that bell. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, there and all of this brings us, I think, to now the big red flags. You know, there because already you can see some of the red flags start to form. Massive Medicare provider. Right, an insurer in the country, one of the largest in the country. It's the vast majority of its revenue. One of the fastest growing in the country. I should right. Think. One of the yeah, one of the fastest growing in the country. You know, gets a significant part of its uh, revenue from Medicare. Significant amount of its plans are sold to low income or minority seniors. Doesn't disclose that the government is also looking into it. You know, so maybe the it makes sense that the first big red flag is that it has deceptive sales practices. Right. You know, Hindenburg report said based on conversations with former employees and review of corporate and insurance filings, we found that Clover's membership growth looks to be driven not by technology, but rather by deceptive sales practices, including a wholly owned Clover subsidiary that misleadingly markets itself as providing independent and unbiased advice to seniors looking for Medicare and the large undisclosed related party transactions with a brokerage entity that was controlled by the head of sales of Clover. You know, these are just some of the reasons. Uh, the DOJ was investigating Clover Health in, in its subpoena, right? But there are other issues, right? And they, they list 12. There's multiple. They include, you know, the fact that 
all right, so they have the payments to healthcare providers, right? And that those were inducing providers to recruit patients to Clover's Medicare Advantage plans, right? They also had activities that were encouraging providers to refuse to accept patients with non-Clover coverage, right? They also had payments to providers, staff, and employees, including receptionists, office managers, right? For conveying any information relating to Clover's plans to patients in providers' offices. So already you see that they're just paying anyone they fucking can to get them to get on Clover's plan. They have payments uh, to the staff and employees who then generate prospective patient leads for Clover plans. They had Clover ambassadors, you know. So imagine everything you hate about a brand ambassador, you know, ball it up into that bitter part of your heart. You know, now you can get to imagine what it would be like if you had an insurance SPAC VC backed brand ambassador that was also exploiting elderly people. Right. Mm -hmm. They also had payments of $5 per referral, you know, like it was a promo code uh, for prospective patients that were not already covered by the Clover plan. They had distribution of gift cards. Gift cards to retail merchants. <laughs> I it's so fucking funny to me. It's like <laughs> these gift cards were for places. So they were giving gift cards to like nurses and doctors, uh, you know, as a reward for referral of prospective patients. And these gift cards were for places like Panera Bread and Amazon <laughs> and Starbucks. <laughs> Bro, how cheap is it to buy <laughs> nurses and doctors right now? Do we need to be paying our nurses and doctors more? Like, <laughs> yeah. come on, uh, yes. man. Yes. Oh, we <laughs> <laughs> it seems so, you know. So they're giving out these they get they gave out gift cards, right? Um, for referrals of prospective patients who weren't covered already by Clover. They also, again, you know, they were paying to providers for services rendered to the patients. Or to Clover, right? They were payments associated with Clover Assistant, as we've talked about, right? They also explicitly had their own recruiting drives for patients. They had other activities that were trying to match patients with the Medicare Advantage plans that they would then sell to them. And they also had an online platform known as Seek Medicare, which we'll talk about because that is in of itself its own issue. I think a site, a justified site for a lot of scrutiny that's going on here. I mean, these are just some of the issues. None of these were disclosed to investors. The company's prospectus includes like an eye glazing disclaimer saying, you know, suggesting that it is and could be under investigation by just about, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, the quotes, the quote here, you know, sounds like every other disclosure. From time to time, we are and may be subject to regular and special governmental market conduct and other audits, investigations and reviews by and we receive and may receive subpoenas and other requests for information from various federal and state agencies, regulatory authorities, attorney generals, committees, subcommittees, and members of U.S. Congress and other state, federal, and international governmental authorities. You know, <laughs> nothing. You know, just, yeah, anyone at any time might be looking at us. I fucking love that shit, that that lawyer speak where it's like, mm -hmm. we may or may not at any time be under active, multiple active investigations. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> we may I mean, or may not be doing something incredibly fraudulent. Maybe. Yeah, probably maybe. not. <laughs> but, but probably not. But, you know, some people might allege that we are. And to those right. people, we say, uh, quit with your ad hominem attacks and your straw mans and your logical fallacies. <laughs> right. Which is very right. funny because in 
Clover Health's response, their medium uh, post responding to Hindenburg's report, they explicitly said this investigation is all based on ad hominems. Uh, it's all based on personal attacks. Like, <laughs> it's so wild. I think that is a really good rundown of a, a lot of the issues that are being raised here about Clover Health. Before we like really dive deep into these big red flags, you know, I want to underscore here as well that I don't think we should see this as like an exception, right? As some kind of anomaly. Take everything we know about insurance companies, everything we know about finance, about Silicon Valley, about venture capital, about quote unquote tech companies, right? Like take everything we know and ask yourself, all right, so with a, a, a company that's being a, a you know, alleged to have rampant malfeasance and fraud at the basis of its operations. Is that is that an anomaly? Is that an exception? <laughs> or or is that something that is extremely easy to believe because we know that this shit happens constantly. We know that like uh, Wall Street, that finance, that insurance, that tech companies are routinely engaging in this kind of shit. And they, they you know, the real disruption of Silicon Valley is finding a way to, to justify and internalize that, right? Like, no, no, this is the price of uh, disruption. This is the price of moving fast and breaking things, right? This is the... F- this is the price of uh, of of grow bigger no matter what uh however you can right like no i mean this this kind of shit is baked into the business model of these companies and it's at the heart of uh a lot of the people and uh, founders and investors um in these companies right i th- and, i and- think clover health is just a a particularly juicy uh example of this and one that thanks to hindenburg's report we have like a really systematic investigation uh, detailing exactly how this is happening. So, you know, one of the ways that, you know, these deceptive practices are still ongoing is with seekmedicare.com you know so we've talked about this subsidiary that clover has uh, seek insurance services you know which owns and operates uh seekmedicare.com you know and you know this website advises seniors on which medicare insurance plans to take or to choose um and the filings for clover with the sec list seek as one of its subsidiaries right but seek doesn't actually mention on its website that it is a subsidiary of Clover. And so it misleadingly advertises to seniors that it's, you know, independent and unbiased uh, when selecting their Medicare plans, right? You know, as uh, Hindenburg reports, right, or writes, um, you know, given the stated purpose of Seek's website is to help seniors pick Medicare insurance plans, we would expect it to disclose it is actually owned by insurance company Clover, posing a major conflict of interest. Seek's website even has a blog post explaining how other brokers often have bias to steer clients towards a plan that best serves their own financial interests. In the blog post, Seek repeatedly declares its neutrality and objectivity, even going so far as to say on the website that, quote, we don't work for insurance companies, we work for you, all the while literally being owned by Clover Health, an insurance company. I mean, this is, uh, it's hard to get more blatant 
than that, right? Such an obvious conflict of interest, such an obviously deceptive move that straddles the line, you know, with fraudulent mm-hmm. activity, right? Yeah, and 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 these like deceptive practices and potential and real conflicts of interest that could very well, as we should expect them to, lead to like you know really material uh, outcomes. They don't just stop with this like seekmedicare.com website. Clover claims that cells are fueled by, uh, as Palahapatia puts it, quote, best in class software. You know, it, it's all that pablum that, that these investors and entrepreneurs and stuff always use. But, you know, in reality, according to a former employee of Clover interviewed by Hindenburg, the company's sales are um, fueled in large part by this undisclosed relationship between Clover uh, and an outside insurance brokerage firm called Bermudez and Henson. Bermudez and Henson is controlled in part by this guy, Hiram Bermudez, who is also Clover's head of sales. Ooh. Um, and, and also happens to be chief sales officer of Seek, of SeekMedicare.com, right? Like my man, my man uh, Hiram Bermudez is is one busy guy. You know, he, he's 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 got his hands in a lot of pots, and and uh, you know he's passing money from the left hand to the right hand and back and forth. So this insurance brokerage firm, uh, Bermudez and Henson, operates what is known as a field marketing organization. So these uh, field marketing organizations or FMOs are essentially in the insurance industry there. They act as middlemen between insurance companies and brokers. Um, so they, they're they're up there negotiating sales deals with the insurance companies that a network of agents can then offer and sell to companies. So as one former employee of Clover explained, quote, Bermudez was brought into Clover early on, like day one. And because he had such a large ground force of sales agents, he was key and instrumental in getting Clover started. He's got both feet in those waters. One is he's head of sales at Clover, and the other one is he owns and manages this massive sales market foundation in the Northeast under his FMO. When Hindenburg spoke to you know these former employees about Bermudez and Henson's relationship with Clover, they were told that... Bermudez had taken intentional steps to conceal the relationship uh, in the run-up to this go-public transaction, right? In the run-up to Palahapatia's SPAC acquiring and bringing public Clover. Why? Due to compliance reasons. So uh, as a former employee put it, quote, he just had to hand his business over to a partner. Then he'd removed his name on it for compliance reasons. His wife is listed as the co-partner with his business partner. He had to get his name off of it. But, you know, like there's going to be a check from Clover going to that business every year. It's going to be a large amount. He makes good money at Clover. He makes the majority of money from the sales that his business makes from Clover. So already we can see this like this self-dealing going on, right? Like Clover's head of sales appears to operate uh, a large separate insurance brokerage firm that does significant undisclosed business with Clover through his wife's maiden name, right? Gotta gotta uh, make sure that those con- those those surname connections can't be drawn very easily. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and, and then, right. you know, Clover goes on to claim in the very first pages of its go public prospectus to be generating its business organically due to its amazing software, not due to this self-dealing relationship 
um, with one guy at the middle between uh, an insurance brokerage and an insurance company and, you know, all, all these, all, all this self-dealing, right? No, no, no. It's, it's because of the amazing software that people love to use and have to be paid to use. <laughs> you know, Hindenburg even talked to some like major competitors to kind of get their view on Clover and on Bermudas and Henson. Uh, and, and one comparator they talked to has experience with both Hiram Bermudas and the New Jersey market where Clover largely operates opined that Bermudas is, quote, one step away from going to prison, and that's the way they run their business. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that kind of can-do attitude that you know we love. That that you know, that is why uh, when you want to look at what what progress is, when you want to look at um, how any company should be run, you you, you got to look at these tech companies, right? Because they they've got they've got the hunger, they've got the aspirations. <laughs> they are willing to be one step away from going to prison um, to make sure that their business is making money. That's how you make money. I mean, that's how you get to profitability by 2023, right? That's right. I mean, all this is part of big red flag number one, right? These deceptive <laughs> yeah. sales practices. I mean, Ed's already covered um, a number of them. Uh, it, you know, when we were doing the rundown through the the DOJ's uh, civil investigative demand. We've already talked about this like quid pro quo with doctors and nurses to generate patient leads, uh, right? Like the, the fucking gift cards. I will never get over that they are giving, distributing gift cards. Uh, but the official explanation that Clover gives for these gift cards was everything except for recruitment and patient lead purposes, right? According to um, one former employee at Clover, these gift cards were justified as being a part of a, a morale boosters or quote, thank yous, motivation, friendship. Can we really hate on friends giving friends gift cards, Ed? I mean, uh, does that make <laughs> us monsters? To, I think it you know, does. <laughs> Look, this is a deal between two adults who uh, understand what's going on two consulting two consenting adults right who just desire you know one of them desires to manipulate the other to do something that benefits them both i mean it's just it's fine right <laughs> just a gift card <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and and you mentioned as well these like clover ambassadors, these fucking brand ambassadors from hell. I think this is really interesting as well. So Clover, you know, was paying the front desk staff at physicians' offices for patient referrals. And these individuals were um referred to in uh what one former employee calls a quote confidential program. Um, they he, always good to have confidential programs uh, <laughs> right. in your in your in your business. Yeah, you know, so these Clover ambassadors, as they were called, quote as one employee put it, the receptionist would notice that a patient checking in was enrolled in, say, United Healthcare, and would mention to the patient that there was another plan that might meet their needs better. Do you want more information? No problem. I'll have them give you a call. No disclosure here that they were being paid or compensated in any way by Clover for doing that kind of ambassador business. Um, it, it was all kind of set up as like, oh, no, the front desk staff at your physician's office, are they're looking out for you, right? They have your best interest at heart. Um, and they're definitely not getting gift cards to Dunkin' Donuts from Clover Health. <laughs> 
obviously, the DOJ is also investigating this program of payment for referrals, right? Among all so many of these other issues. I mean, you know, I feel like so, you know, we've given you, uh, dear listener, just the tip of the iceberg here. Right. Oh, my God. Uh, You know, we've got a bunch more big red flags to go through on Clover Health. I mean, this Hindenburg report is damning. And as I was reading it, as I was looking further into Clover Health, looking further into Chamath Palihapitiya, looking further into all of this, it, it was just, it was mind boggling to me. Yeah, the deceptive sales practices are like, okay, I mean, that's in a part kind of like the jury, right? Like we, we expect, a, I mean, that's what sales is, right? It's trying to deceive you into buying a thing. Um, it goes so much deeper than that. We've got big red flags ranging from upcoding, right? Which what what is upcoding? That's you know undisclosed overbilling, uh, you know of Medicare, right? Like bilking Medicare for more money. Probably um, legal. Maybe who knows? Yeah, Sounds maybe <laughs> uh, maybe something that the government doesn't look so fondly upon. Uh, but you know who knows? It, you know we talked about uh, paying for growth of. It's not only that they they had to pay doctors to use this software, but as Hindenburg lays out, the software is fucking shitty. <laughs> it's like it's <laughs> yeah. really really bad. I mean, to the point where you're like, oh, okay, now I understand why you got to pay people to use it, right? Because it, it's absolutely not helpful. I mean, all you know, things like continual turnover at, at Clover, right? Like they were shedding um, C-suite officers like nobody's business. Probably a great sign that think that the ship was running smoothly over right. at business, right? I mean, all the way up to like, you know, really uh, what really raised my heckles was, you know, the CEO of Clover, uh, Vivek Garaparli, um, his history of extraction from the healthcare services and like running these famously price gouging budget hospitals for years. Just- for years. for years, all over the state, all over, all over New Jersey, <laughs> and making a ton of money while doing it, while also making like undisclosed million-dollar donations to uh, Newark's mayor and other things like that. Right? Like, in it, fact, it, it's funny that Palahapatia, you know, described him as an absolute proven moneymaker because he is. You know, he does. Uh, what needs to be done illegally, probably, to get money, whether that means uh, undisclosed uh, donations to the mayor, uh, price gouging, you know, he will get you your money. That's no right. He will get you your money. I think we're going to leave uh, this episode here. You know, we've given you this this rundown of SPACs. We've given you a tip of the iceberg of Clover Health. You're going to want to stick around for the premium episode where we dig deeper into these big red flags because, I mean, th- this this report is damning, it's enraging, but it also, more than that, it is a perfect example of the kind of innovation in the market that we get through things like SPACs. When you don't have to do public disclosures, when you don't have to have solid business fundamentals. Like, I'm at this point now where I'm, I'm like, 
you know, my socialist aspirations are, are, are have have essentially been constrained to that of a like like a business school professor, where I just wish companies would have solid fundamentals and like right. <laughs> and like balance sheets that that actually made sense and weren't Profit. cooked to shit. You know, yeah. <laughs> a business like, model, uh, good labor conditions. Um, you know, literally. Um, you know, some some good corporate governance, you know, like all the things that I'm told are the reasons why capitalism is better than communism every fucking day. Right? That's right. I, I, I'm, I'm, I have no choice but to do the bigotry of low expectations on companies. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's a hate crime. We're doing some hate crimes against companies today. <laughs> so i want to thank everyone for listening i hope your interest has been piqued a little bit because we are going to dive so much deeper into this uh subscribe at patreon.com slash this machine kills um to really understand how the innovative insure tech company is extracting from medicare bilking senior citizens and revolutionizing the healthcare industry in this great united states of america um, mm-hmm. so with that uh we will see you uh later in the week uh with your premium episode later